it was a book I hadn't written before. And it was a book I hadn't read before because nobody had written a book about a close friendship between two great stars. Most books about uh, friendships between famous people are about politicians. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. In this episode, I bring you two more conversations with authors I met at Cinevent, the classic movie convention held over Memorial Day in Columbus, Ohio. I'll talk to Richard Berrios about Hollywood's best, and a few of its worst, movie musicals. And biographer Scott Iman about the long-running friendship of two legendary Hollywood stars, Jimmy and Hank. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. Thanks. I'd sure appreciate it. A show that is really a show sends you out with a kind of a glow and you say as you go on your way that's entertainment however intellectual learned or just plain obscure our love of movies gets as an adult it probably traces back to a teenager reading about old movies in a book whose title contained words like the best ever or the top 100. Popularizing a field is essential to bringing new people and new life into it. Richard Berrios is the author of scholarly works on musicals such as A Song in the Dark, The Birth of the Musical Film, and Dangerous Rhythm, Why Movie Musicals Matter, as well as Screened Out, Playing Gay in Hollywood, from Edison to Stonewall. But when TCM approached him with the idea of a list book called Turner Classic Movies Must See Musicals, 50 Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget, he told me why he couldn't resist putting his top 50 in print. I had kind of done the more obscure, even esoteric stuff, and this was an opportunity to um, reach out to a, a... a, a, a wider audience that maybe didn't know a lot about musicals, but enjoyed them, and it was an opportunity to, you know, talk about them some in their history and backgrounds, and to especially point out the really good ones. Because TCM and I decided that it was going to be 50, and, you know, the 50, we could say best, are most significant. Yeah, because that's part of it, is, is showing the evolution of the form, and not sure. just, I like these the most. Um, it, they were very good, TCM was, about giving me a lot of leeway in producing uh, uh, the, the choices, coming up with the choices that I did. Uh, I have to say, naturally, there were some that I would not have chosen, and there's some that I would have liked to have had in there, 
but I think we came up with a pretty good central list. And I was also very happy that for every one film that's in there, I gave like a supplemental list of two films that, uh, you know, the kind of second second greatest. All right, so how did you make the list? I mean, that was, that was a committee process initially, or...? I came up with a list, and I turned it in to them, and then they came up with a couple of suggestions, and it was actually a very easy process. It wasn't because, you know, and, and I've had people ask me, well, why isn't this one in there? Why isn't that one? And I've always said 50 isn't that large a number, and they're, you know, how are you not going to have Singing in the Rain? Yeah. <laughs> How are you not going to have a uh, top hat? You know, and th- there are a few more uh, sort of obscure choices, but basically they were very good about giving me leeway and they understood that I found it very necessary to put in uh, a lot of the pioneering early works. Uh, Broadway Melody, Sunnyside Up, Love Parade, King of Jazz that you know maybe some books would not have focused on but I thought were really really necessary to show the roots of the musical and then how it kind of developed from there yeah and it's interesting I mean they have several of the most important musical libraries I mean they have Warner Brothers so they have Busby Berkeley they have RKO so they have Fred and Ginger that and MGM MGM all the way through yeah um what did you bring in from outside and they were good with seeing some of these other studios? Um, well, they were the ones that actually made the suggestion for uh, Le Million, the Rene Claire movie from oh. 1931. And I was very, very happy to do that because, you know, we usually regard musicals as uh, sort of an intrinsically American genre, but obviously there are great musicals made pretty much all around the world and I thought that was a really good a really good choice and it is a film that not many people know I don't think it's run on TCM I'm not sure yeah uh, and then one that I got to put in which I love and uh, and I I know it's never run on TCM because it's Fox is the girl can't help it no, which, yeah. is, which is the like archetypal rock and roll musical from, yeah. from the 50s right the only one that didn't have a a budget of a dollar fifty, basically, and 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 had a good script. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the rest of them, really, we didn't we didn't have too much trouble with that. Uh, I knew I wanted to put in uh, Greece because it's not one of my personal favorites, but I know it is for a lot of people, and it was really big and a uh, big musical at a time when there weren't big musicals. And then, of course, Rocky Horror which is still probably the the most extremely popular cult movie of all time because you know it sank when it re- was released and then became the ultimate uh cult midnight movie classic yeah and really as an experience more than just as a film itself it became more about more than the film like you know, the, th- the third week it was out. Yeah, <laughs> it 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 became it became a phenomenon. People were already throwing hot dogs that early, huh? It was and rice and and the the, the, the newspapers, everything, everything. <laughs> and there's really hasn't been any other film that's been that kind of phenomenon in that way. And I think the fact that it was a musical 
with all that was was significant because it yeah. added to the over the topdom of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about how I mean the, the younger generations now. I mean, they don't have a steady diet of musicals. Obviously, that really no. hasn't been true since probably the sixties. Right. Um, and it's kind of a weird thing to some people. If you you know if you don't experience it often, it's kind of weird that people suddenly go from talking to singing and jumping about. Um, how do how do you find that that younger audiences react to musicals now? Well, they've been lucky in a way, I think, because they've had things like Glee, which really do sort of help prepare them in a lot of ways for it. So they're and and music videos, which of course aren't the cottage industry they were maybe twenty five years ago, but really did cannibalize a lot from the classic musicals so that but it was good that it gave younger people a grounding even for those who didn't grow up with Busby Berkeley or a stare or all that kind of thing um, for a lot of people it is always going to be an alien art form there you know musicals have divided people since 1928 <laughs> and they will continue to because some people just aren't going to like it and then of course the other part of it was and this started happening maybe in the 70s and 80s and has continued that the kind of escapism that musicals were loved for doing has that sort of been superseded by you know, intergalactic yeah. <laughs> uh, explosions and car crashes and all this yeah. kind of schlock. Uh, Although I think of sci-fi movies as the biblical epics of, of our time, too. The, well, the, the more expensive ones, yeah. maybe. Well, you know, has, has Marvel replaced the Bible, yeah. you know, in the, in the public <laughs> estimation? That, that, that could be, that could be. Um, but you're right, when they're flying about, I mean, what is that if not a musical number of a sort? It, yeah. it, it, they, the, the, the big action sequences are to modern audiences as production numbers were in the 30s and 40s and 50s, I think. I think that's a, a, fair, a fair equivalency. And, you know, escapism, for whatever that is, has certainly gotten harder-edged than it was... Uh, when audiences were going to see, say, you know, Nelson Eddy and Jeanette right. McDonald or something like that. Uh, and for people who love musicals, I think the feeling is that musicals have charted the whole, the whole way in, uh, and, you know, and have kept some innocence along with some cynicism and, you know, and have kept a fairly good equilibrium with that. I think for the people who liked La La Land, uh, of which I was one, and I know some people are not. I think the way that movie bridged all of musical film from the very beginning to right now and kind of was able to encompass that and then encompass the way that a lot of us ordinary people love the notion of being able to get up and sing and dance if we you know, feel moved to do it. I thought it was really, really good with that. And I thought that was also a good movie to introduce younger, less experienced audiences to the genre. And, you know, they might be happy to find that, uh, yes, we love Emma Stone, but Sid Charisse was a better dancer. Right. <laughs> well, and that's what I find many musical fans dislike that film because it lacked 
the professionalism, but you know, it's it's modeled in so many ways as the Jacques Demy films like Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and it's kind of how do you get people back into the musical by letting ordinary people become musical when they have the charm of the two actors in La La Land, yeah, and the 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 inherent magnetism of them, and I thought it did it very well, and then that last. Uh, production number, the alternate ending, yeah. which was basically an homage to an American in Paris, I thought was absolutely brilliant. And I've included clips from it in, uh, in lectures and presentations I've done to show, and this is one of the things I love about musicals, is how resonant they are, that they keep, you know, the, the good ideas keep on happening and keep finding good ways to be rechanneled. And so you, you see a clip of Gene Kelly in An American in Paris, and then you see a clip from La La Land together, and you get the whole continuity of history. And, um, and the fact that Damien Chazelle uh, cited Umbrellas of Sherberg as one of his uh, influences, and also Love Me Tonight. Huh. And I was ecstatic to find out yeah. that he knew that movie and had modeled the opening uh, uh, number, the um, Traffic Jam production number. He had modeled it after the opening of Love Me Tonight. Oh, I didn't. I never got that. It's been so long since I've seen that. Uh, you need to see I it. Need to get, I own it even, and I but I haven't watched it forever. The only the only number that I kind of remember is the the Apache. The Apache. Uh, there's so much that's amazing in that movie. So much that was really ahead of its time. And uh, every once in a while, I get asked my my ten my my ten favorite movies, or what's your favorite musical, and all that. And um, and Love Me Tonight is always in the top three or something like wow. that. Because I think just think there's so many things it does so brilliantly. All right. Well, I'm I'm ashamed that it's been on my shelf that long. Then. But I will. You, I, you can get back to it when you're I, able. I will get back to it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Let's talk. Let's just kind of talk through what you think. Like the really, the ones that people need to be familiar. Not so much a top ten, but just like what, what do people need to know? Well, there are lots of musicals that aren't known as well as maybe they ought to be. And I think Love Me Tonight is an excellent example of that because it's, you know, it's what, 86 years old and it's in black and white. So some people just, just for those reasons will not. And it's, it's a magical movie. It's, it's, it's um, another one that just got restored very, very recently and they got an amazing restoration of it. It was a movie that a few more people now know than used to is King of Jazz, which if you see it, it is so alien to what we think of as conventional musical cinema because it's it doesn't have a plot, it's a review, it's a series of big numbers, and it's an early Technicolor, which doesn't look exactly like the way. But it's, it's this amazing kind of marvelous museum piece of different kinds of production styles and music and musical genres and all these sort of things all in one package and the fact that Universal cared enough to do such a major restoration of it is really is really stunning yeah it's a, it's amazing and you know I think it's probably been the most talked about film ever on Nitrateville just through the whole process of it being restored people are fascinated by it because it's such an unusual thing it's like nothing else and the fact that it was able to to come back from the dead yeah. after it was you know nearly at the age of nearly 90 
And uh, I was at a couple of the very early screenings of it at the Museum of Modern Art, and the audience was just... And it wasn't only for the movie, but it was for the quality of the restoration and the right. sound and the picture and everything else, and the fact that these things can still be done. And that, let's face it, I know, I know a lot of people aren't happy that... Uh, uh, Bytes are replacing actual film stock, and I understand that, and I think there's a place for both. But some of these restorations are only possible now uh, with through digital means, and and they've been able to do some amazing things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, just the the Technicolor, they, they really achieved what kind of couldn't be achieved back then with that restoration. And uh, there's still a couple of schools of thought about how if the color should have try to approximate more what it would have looked like in 1930, which it doesn't really. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, basically that uh, a movie that was that old got so talked about, and not just at Nitrateville either. Right, yeah, no. Uh, even, you know, the and, New York and Times. the yeah. New York Times, mainstream press. And, uh, but it's just the importance of, and I try to highlight that in, in my books wherever I can, the importance of... Uh, a film preservation and you know just the fact that they're able to find films that we never thought we'd see again that were thought to be lost and all that and they turn up well tell me an MGM one that you think is underrated I have my own favorite MGM one that I know a lot of people don't care for but I I really really like it and that was the third version because MGM filmed it three times of The Merry Widow and it was done as a, a really interesting silent film in 1925 by uh, Eric von Stroheim, of all people. And then Ernst Lubitsch filmed it in 1934 with uh, Jeanette McDonald and Maurice Chevalier. And then it was made a third time uh, in 1952 in color uh, with a star not known for singing and dancing, Lana Turner, but who was you know, one of the most beautiful women in film. And it's this gorgeous Technicolor production. The music is beautiful. Fernando Lamas is the leading man, and he was a quite a good singer. And it's... Um, some people are disappointed because the widow doesn't sing more. But it's a really... It's an elegant and enjoyable film. And that's one I wish more people knew about. But it's not in the top... In the 50 in the book, is it? No. Yeah. No, I. It's an. It may be in my personal fifty, but okay. you have to serve history, not just your own particular. Right. So it's number fifty-one, something like that. Yeah. There, there are a lot. There are a lot of those because we're all we're all going to have our favorites, and some people call them guilty pleasures. I don't find many of them something to feel guilty about. The if I can share my one really really awful guilty pleasure in the musical genre is um, a, a movie from the 90s called Showgirls <laughs> which is some of the most horrendous musical cinema you will ever see and that's why those of us who love it love it but it's nothing to aspire yeah. to you know <laughs> I was wondering if it was going to be uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains or something like that. <laughs> Not too many people know that movie. Yeah. Or the, the first nudie musical yeah. was another one. I mean, there's some, there's, there's some strange... And then, of course, there are the real dogs. You know, in my book, Dangerous Rhythm, I wrote a whole chapter just on the dogs. Because some of them are 
you know, magnetic in their awfulness, and some of them you just wonder why they turned out the way they did, and how you know, yeah. it's because they're like textbooks of how not to do it. And I think Paint Your Wagon is a good example yeah. of that. I, you know, the one I could never get more than ten minutes into is Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um, there's some good cinema. There are two really good stars. Yeah. But the score's not very good. Score's not good, and it's long. It's long, and also it's like you know, there's a zoom lens. And then there's shooting an entire movie through a sniper scope, which is what I feel like that movie. It's very late sixties looking. Yeah. Uh, Sweet Charity is somewhat the same way, but that technique maybe seems a little more uh, uh, con- congruent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Mr. Chips, it doesn't. I mean, Herbert Ross was an uneven director. Yeah, he could do some well and. It could be said the very best thing he ever did as far as cinema is the Don't Rain on My Parade sequence from Funny Girl, the tugboat and, and all that, which is which is really one of the most cinematic numbers ever made. And some of his other movies, eh, not so much. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the 60s one, pure 60s, although not <coughs> not so much in technique. Technique's pretty straightforward that I love is How to Succeed in Business without really trying. It's a very good... There are several... Um, from the 50s and 60s of these sort of mid-range adaptations of Broadway shows that they're not the, 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 the mega-budgeted roadshow behemoths like right. Fair Lady or, or, or some of that, but they're really, really well done because, and part of it is because they were done on reasonable budgets by people who knew what they were doing and let the material speak for itself. Kept, kept the cast. How, and kept the cast. How to Succeed is like that. Lil Abner is like that. And The Pajama Game is like that. Yeah. Pajama Game I do have in the 50 list, partly because of Doris Day, who was the one thing from Broadway they didn't bring to Hollywood, but she was wonderful. But they, you know, they weren't roadshow movies, and they weren't really big hits either, but they really respected their material and now seem much better because of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. and, and the fact that Rudy Valley finally was in a good musical right. after 40 years. <laughs> well, you know, he's always, uh, you know, talked about as being kind of stuck up. But in one of his books, he uh, he's very grateful to Preston Sturgis and said, Sturgis saw him in some terrible 30s musical, but realized he could be in Palm Beach Story. And 20 years later, the producers of How to Succeed said, well, we loved you in Palm Beach Story. So I was like, he owed, you know, Sturgis, owed it all to them. Sturgis saw something in him that uh, other directors did not see. And, um, but I, when I was doing research way, way, way back in the day, um, I've, he, he shot one song for uh, a 1929 musical called Glorifying the American Girl, yes, which was shot in Astoria. And... Um, he, he came in and shot his song and then left, but before he left, he, he gave out, handed out autographed pictures to everybody, and nobody was impressed with him at all, and uh, uh, after he left, all you had to go was, do was go to any, into any men's room at the studio, and you'd see his autographed pictures <laughs> hanging in extremely inappropriate places. <laughs> That was Rudy Valley, folks. All right. Well, let's uh, let's. Go. So the idea of number fifty-one. If you want, could squeeze one more in. What's what's that film? Probably Kiss Me, Kate. Oh. That was one I really didn't want uh, to lose, but you know, you you had to. Uh, 
And that's one you'd really need to see in a movie theater in 3D. Yeah. And it's delightful. But it, once again, it's one of those 50s uh, Broadway adaptations that respects the material and doesn't blow it up. Uh, that's why South Pacific is not in the book, because <laughs> South Pacific is a hard, long slog uh, with too many camera filter, colored yeah. camera filters. Yeah. But, but I like Kiss Me Kate a lot. And uh, I wish it were in the book. Uh, it is in, in, in my pantheon, anyway. So, well, then, speaking of Rodgers and Hammerstein, mm-hmm. pro or con? You in favor of them, or you think that... Rodgers and Hammerstein? I think at their best, they're amazing. Um, I love King and I. Um, I think Oklahoma is, uh, is, is a really, really well-done musical film. And... Uh, I know there are going to be some people who love it and there are some people who hate it. The Sound of Music, that is one of the textbook examples of how to really technically produce a, an outstanding movie musical. That movie is just so impeccably done. You can rail at the <laughs> material if you're not into nuns or Nazis or whatever, uh, but just amazingly well done. And for those of us for whom Julie Andrews will always be, you know, a magical goddess. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, Sound of Music, the two stars are so young and beautiful. The, 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 the location so, the work is, so is astounding. I mean, it's just you could not yeah. have produced a better version of that material. No, no. And, and really does improve on the, on the Broadway uh, yeah. source. Uh, so... I love Rodgers and Hammerstein. I also love Rodgers and Hart, and that brings us back to Love Me Tonight. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the Rodgers and uh, Hart Broadway shows weren't, weren't very cinematic enough to make good movies. Pal Joey's a terrible musical, for example. Um, but, but the songs are so good. And um, so the, musicals are uh, a, kind of a big tent sort of pantheon so there's room for a lot of things in there there might even be room for Mamma Mia although I wouldn't want to make it if I didn't have to and I like ABBA but Richard Berrios' Turner Classic Movies Must See Musicals, 50 Show-Stopping Movies We Can't Forget, came out last October. I'll have a link for it and his other books in the show post at nitrateville.com. Why don't you ask her if she can play the clarinet? She wanted to put everybody out of work? Cinevent doesn't normally show clips from films. But this year, Scott Iman did a program that included a 30-minute or so sequence from a 1948 episodic comedy called On Our Merry Way, because it's one of the few films, he said, that really captured the camaraderie between two of Hollywood's most famous stars, James Stewart and Henry Fonda. Iman, the biographer of everyone from Cecil B. DeMille and Ernst Lubitsch to John Ford and John Wayne, takes both stars on in Hank and Jim, the 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart, published last fall by Simon & Schuster. 
I asked him why he chose to write two biographies in one. Because it was a book I hadn't written before. And it was a book I hadn't read before because nobody had written a book about a close friendship between two great stars. Most books about uh, friendships between famous people are about politicians. Churchill and Roosevelt or, or uh, Jefferson and Adams, you know. And, uh, but I don't even know if it's possible to do a book with a modern generation because everybody's itinerant. You know, you're not centered in any place anymore. Uh, you go where the work is, whether you're shooting for HBO, you're in Prague, and all yeah. this. so you, you know, you're just not in one area to make close friendships. But in the studio era, basically, unless you're on location, you were in LA. So everybody saw everybody else all the time. And if you wanted to be somebody's friend, you could be. And so they had this, this huge bond. So I thought it was an interesting alternative to the books I've read about Hollywood. And it was more intimate and less, uh, less uh, epic. Yeah. And I thought the intimacy of it appealed to me. So where'd you first run across the story of them and think about them as candidates for that? Oh, you'd see an occasional sentence referring to the fact that they were close friends, you know, in one book or another. And I never thought anything of it. And I was on tour with the John Wayne book in L.A. And I was having dinner with John Sackett Young, who did China Beach and West Wing. He's a friend. And he said, what are you doing next? And I said, I have no clue. I just want to get through this, this, this baton death march thing that book tours are. And he said, you know what I've always wanted to read? Christ, here it comes. Because you get a lot of that. And it's usually, I'd like to read about oh, Sterling Holloway. Yeah. You know, and, and you say, well, that's a great idea. Somebody should write a book about Sterling Holloway, and you move away as fast as yeah. possible. Uh, but uh, he said, I'd like to read a book about the friendship between Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart. And I thought, huh, that's not stupid. That's like a really... Interest. That's a really good idea, and it was almost instantaneous. It was like a light bulb went on, and the, you know the cliche uh, of, of ideas striking. That's a really good idea. Uh, I didn't know if I could do it, if it was feasible, right? Because you know, going in, that it's going to be essentially anecdotal, because it's not like they wrote letters to each other all the time. They yeah. weren't those kinds of guys. They, they, you know, they just didn't. Uh, and I didn't know if I'd be able to get access to the families, because that was going to be crucial. So I kind of proceeded uh, tentatively for a while until Bob Osborne said, oh, I know Shirley Fonda, I'll get you Shirley. She's an old friend, because Bob knew everybody. Yeah. And he picked up the phone, and Shirley said she thought it was a great idea, and before you know it, I was uh, in Bel Air talking to Shirley. And she put the hand on Jane and Peter, and I was off and running, and my friend R.J. Wagner uh, is very close, was very close with Jimmy Stewart. When Stewart uh, retreated from the world, after his wife died. Stewart had been on the board of trustees of uh, uh, St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. And when he retired from all public activity, he asked RJ to take over his Santa Monica responsibilities. So RJ's friends with all the Stewart kids. So he called Kelly, and Kelly said, okay. You know, so that got me started with them as the foundation, with the kids and, the, and uh, Fonda's uh, 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 widow is the foundation. It was comparatively easy to put together from that. Uh, and then I had to go uh, do a document, do the document search, you know, at, in New York and L.A. Yeah. Um, so their story really starts in uh, 
low rent theater, or, or I guess that, that in 1932, time, all theater was low. Rent. All theater was low rent. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody was, was making any money. Nobody's no. making any money. No. But like a small artistic theater right. with an amazing list of people who came out of Joshua Logan yeah. and Myron McCormick and, and Margaret Sullivan and Fonda Mildred and Stewart, Millie Natwick. Uh, no, they had a they had a great eye for young talent uh, who were willing to work for. Basically free, you know. It was like a summer camp, except I'm sure the performances were probably better than most amateur theatricals, given their level of talent. Yeah, you know. And then from there, I don't know. I guess Fonda went to Hollywood first, or was Sullivan? Fonda went to Hollywood in '35. Stewart followed six months later at MGM. Fonda got hired by Walter Wanger, signed by Walter Wanger. Stewart got signed by MGM, but they they'd been living together for three years in New York by that time, from '32 to '35. Uh, Fonda went out and established the beachhead, as it were, and then Stewart came out and they threw in together in a rented place in Brentwood. And they lived there for two years until Fonda got married. And then he moved out and Stewart carried on with uh, Logan and uh, Burgess Meredith and Myron McCormick and anybody else that needed a crash pad, basically. Cause, and then they all went off to war in 1941. Now you said finally got married, but that's his second marriage at that point. That was his second marriage because yes. his first was Margaret. Margaret Sullivan. That was a train wreck that lasted about three, three or four months, and they separated and they got divorced a year later. But they only actually were married for a very short time. But it also seems like it's something that affected him. He seems Fonda. He seems to become more withdrawn and mm-hmm. I think moody, melancholy mm-hmm. for the rest of his life, it kind of seems. Yeah, well, like I said, it's crucial. Uh, uh, I was lucky enough, uh, 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 John Swope's son, Mark, who was alive at the time I was researching the book, he died just as the book was approaching a publication. Uh, but he had the home movies that his dad took uh, of the uh, players uh, in, uh, in, uh, on the Cape. And so I got a chance to see Fonda and Sullivan and Logan and that whole crew uh, uh, as, they, as they were in a home movie context uh, before he got married, uh, before he got married to Sullivan and the actual marriage ceremony. Swope took movies of the marriage ceremony and the, and the uh, uh, reception. Uh, and it's a Fonda I never saw before or since, you know. It was uh, exuberant, joyful, grinning, uh, obviously gobsmacked about his, uh, this woman he adored. And, you know, St- Sullivan was mercurial and uh, not someone that necessarily put a high price on uh, 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 emotional loyalty. You know, she was a moving, moving target. Uh, and men were extraordinarily attracted to her for a woman that, on the basis of her films, was not drop-dead gorgeous. She had personality and she certainly had talent, but she's got a sort of uh, elfin charm you know, uh, and, but men went berserk over and interesting that. So uh, I'm not sure if it was a cause and effect with Fonda. All I know is on the basis of those films I saw that Mark showed me, and it's probably 25 or 30 minutes worth of footage of, uh, of the players playing uh, and goofing around and building sets and at the wedding reception and signing the medic license and all that. It was a Fonda that uh, you, very few people ever saw afterwards because he was really exuberant uh, and carefree. And Fonda always carried, you know, gave the sense of carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, off screen as well as on. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's interesting looking at where they were, like about 1938. 
Fon, they're both working a lot, not necessarily the greatest pictures. Mm-hmm. Fonda was in pretty good shape. He was number two to Tyrone Power and mm-hmm. Jesse James, things like that. Mm-hmm. Stewart was making the most god-awful things at mm-hmm. MGM. Mm-hmm. I mean, of, of human hearts has to be just humiliating <laughs> to watch now. Yeah. I think Frank Capra demonstrated to MGM what they had, you know, that he really had extraordinary capabilities that they were not utilizing. But that was typical with MGM. I mean, look at how they flamed out with Grace Kelly. Yeah, I mean everything Grace Kelly made that we remember wasn't made at MGM. You know, it was it was made for Hitchcock at Paramount or on loan over here, yeah. or on loan over there. They didn't know what to do with her. <coughs> or Joan Crawford, they dump her. Or Joan Crawford, and she promptly goes out and makes Mildred Pierce right. an Oscar. Right, yeah. right, right. No, that was MGM did not always have. Uh, they they had a good eye for talent. They didn't always know necessarily how to promote that talent and present that talent to its best. But after Capra, suddenly they give him Lubitsch. You know, they give Stuart Lubitsch to do Shop Around the Corner, uh, and then they give him the Philadelphia story. But I don't know if they would have given him those pictures without uh, the, the two Capra pictures, You Can't Take It With You and uh, Mr. Smith. Right, he could easily have been just, you know, a good-looking juvenile who kind of Gawky, good-looking, uh, Midwestern juvenile parts, and sometimes he'll get the girl and sometimes he won't get the girl. But none of those pictures he was making at MGM before 1940 were going to carry him anywhere particular. Yeah. And Fonda, uh, the same way. I mean, his his career at Fox was better, but Grapes of Wrath took him. Obviously well, John to Ford, a far John Ford was level. the making of Fonda. Yeah. You know, before the war, uh, between uh, well, Drums Long and Mohawk is a beautifully done commercial movie. It's not profound, but it's extremely powerful and well yeah. done. But Young Mr. Lincoln and Grapes of Wrath are classics, consensus classics, especially Grapes of Wrath. Uh, and they put Fonda on a plateau that he never really got off. You know, even after the war, he hooks up with, and he went to, he went to his comfort zone after the war, as Ca- as Stewart did with Capra, because they were both, you know, uh, uh, turbulent and and upset and had trouble finding their footing after the war. So they retreat to their comfort zone, which in Fonda's case is John Ford, and the boat and drinking with Ward Bond and Duke Wayne, and uh, and making a western, you know, uh, and they, luckily they made a great western. Uh, and then he goes out and makes the, the uh, the uh, the fugitive, and yeah. <laughs> decides he needs to get out of Hollywood and go to New York. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, he did Fort Apache as well, but yeah. uh, but he retrie- but he does three pictures in a row with 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 Ford. Um, so Fonda, for all of his stand apartness, and he always stood apart. There was a, a deep symbiotic uh, closeness with Ford that you can't get away from. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it also just shows they were both very savvy career managers. It's more obvious with Stewart, obviously Lou Wasserman, mm-hmm. and he were a great star manager partnership that changed Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And he also knew how to like darken his, his image over time. I feel like Fonda maybe didn't have as clear a sense of it th- at that point. Or do you think that's fair? Well, I, no, I don't think Fonda's um, uh, main orientation was movies. After 1947, he considers himself, and if you'd asked him, he would have said, I'm a stage actor. And he did movies to support his lifestyle to a great extent. A lot of Fonda's movies he never saw after the war. He really didn't. The list of Henry Fonda movies that he liked, you can count on two hands comfortably and have a couple fingers left over. He liked the Ford pictures. Uh, he liked uh, 12 Angry Men. He liked Once Upon a Time in the West a lot. Uh, he liked 12 Ang- uh, He liked uh, The Wrong Man, the Hitchcock picture, a lot. 
uh, a picture emerges of a very dour <laughs> sensibility, yeah. the pictures he liked. Well, know. that was great here. I mean, you showed that clip from On Our Merry Way, yeah. where the two of them are just kind of goofing around, very comfortable. In but you can feel their rapport. Yeah, they're you can very absolutely comfortable feel together, and yeah. that's what really comes through so strongly. And you're right, you wish, you know, where are the five movies like that? Yeah. You know, Cheyenne Social Club doesn't really count. <laughs> it doesn't really compare. Well, you just think now, yeah, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin are having a good time, and it's, it, it, it works sometimes. You can really feel the rapport there, too, in uh, Some Came Running and you know, right. one or two of the other pictures. But there is no Fonda Stewart movie that's the equivalent, where you get to luxuriate in their, uh, their relationship, you know, yeah. other than that half hour of footage from On Our Merry Way. Right. Um, well, let's talk about their war experience for a minute. Um, Stewart's, I think, is fairly well known that he, you know, that he flew bomber missions mm -hmm. and, you know, da darkened his outlook, which I think you can certainly see mm -hmm. as early as It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, you could say Capra is still doing the same kind of thing he did in Mr. Smith, which gets darker over time. But still, I mean, it just has a post-war feel, and it's obviously come to sum up the post-war era for a lot of people. Well, I mean, is that how you see Stewart's, and how do you see Fonda's by comparison? Well, after finally he's L.A. in 47, and he spends the next uh, 16 years in New York. One of the attractions, I'm sure, for wrong man, aside from the fact he never worked for Hitchcock before, it was shot in New York. He didn't have to go back to L.A. Yeah. So it was entirely a New York film, a location picture, which would have appealed to him because he loved New York, and he loved walking in New York. He loved doing the art galleries in Fifth Avenue. That was his only exercise. He didn't do anything. <laughs> he didn't swim. He didn't golf. All he did was walk. And New York's a walking town. L.A., you can't walk anywhere. Right. Uh, basically, his 50s were spent doing theater, you know? And every once in a while, he'd do a movie for... But he wasn't... See, Fonda didn't haggle about money. His movies, his price was usually $100,000 flat. Uh, and he had a percentage of... Uh, he had a small percentage of Fort Apache, as did Wayne. They never got it. Uh, <laughs> The Fugitive, forget about it. Uh, and he, he cumulatively made a lot of money on 12 Angry Men because he produced it. But it dropped dead in 1957. It just found its audience in the 60s on television. And it, kept, it just kept running. Uh, and he made a lot of money on it. But at the time, it was, another, it was a stiff. You know, yeah. he, he figured it was a, a one-off, and that's why he never produced another picture. Uh, but he was not a money-centered guy. He was very focused on quality more than uh, amassing a fortune. Uh, Jimmy Stewart wanted it both ways. Stewart was very concerned about money. Uh, and uh, with Lou Wasserman's help, became extraordinarily wealthy, even by the standards of leading men. Uh -huh. You know, he might have had, I doubt he had as much as Cary Grant, but he had a lot of money. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of money. Because he, I mean, Wasserman arranged not just percentages, but I mean, Stewart was a part owner of the negative of Rear Window. And, and Vertigo, which, of course, took a long time to, before that meant anything, but it meant a great deal over time. Right. You know, I mean, he, Stewart was not just a 10% guy. He was actually getting uh, ownership of some negatives. Um, and that was with Wasserman's help, you know. And that's why he did favors for Lou Wasserman, like Cindy's Fellow that we saw the other night. Yeah. You know, that little TV movie, which is a charming. Yeah, charming, charming film. Um, you know, I... I I love that period in the 50s where Stewart is really daring you to 
like him still mm-hmm. as a you know as a lovable aw shucks guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's so so hard bitten in so many things. First, the Anthony Mann pictures, and then we'll the start Hitchcock. with things like North Side, North call Northside seven seven seven. That True. starts in the forties. True, that True. really starts. In the, now he was careful to balance stuff off. He would do call Northside seven 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 and follow it with I don't know the jackpot Harvey. or Harvey. You know, uh, and Harvey of course was not that huge of a hit. They thought it was going to be huge. And Winchester 73 was an add-on that nobody cared about because it's just a Western. And Winchester 73 actually was much more successful at the time than Harvey was. And it cost very little, whereas Harvey was expensive because they had to pay serious money for the play. And Stewart. Uh, but, but yeah, Stewart's great period is in Dolly the 50s. Where he really, you can, you can, I, can, I can't think of more than two movies, I think, that weren't any good. Uh, the FBI story is not very good and there's one other one but I can't place it quite and I mean Spirit of St. Louis was a bomb a terrible bomb but it's a good movie it's a good movie he's, yeah, he's too old yeah that's the only problem but once if you can get past that it's a very well done movie and Billy Wilder's uh, working outside his comfort zone you know but I think the picture works yeah I think it really works dramatically so I feel like Stewart Maybe, I don't know, something like Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is about the last time that he's really sort of pushing out like that. No, Flight of the Phoenix. Flight of the Phoenix. Flight of the Phoenix, that's a very under, to this day, is an underrated picture. Yeah. You know, but it's a really good movie. And then he sort of accepts that he's sort of foxy. He's old. Yeah, and he starts taking uh, those crazy kids who want to go to Paris and meet Bridget Bardot. (laughs) And, you know, he downshifts. He downshifts. And he had a TV series. Two. He did two TV series. One, each of them lasted. The first was a sitcom with Ronnie Howard. I forget who played his wife. Might have been Julie Adams. I don't know who it was. But it was a sitcom, and it ran, I think, uh, two years. And then the the, there was he did a riff on uh, Anatomy of a Murder about a lawyer, uh, which didn't run. I think it ran eight episodes. It was an hour. It was ninety minute shows. Okay. And he did like eight of them. And uh, they didn't run. And Andy Williams went and did the same, basically the same show, and it ran for 15 years with Matlock. But it was the same show. Yeah. You know, foxy uh, country lawyer that everybody thinks they can roll over, and he turns out to be smarter than the city slickers. Yeah. 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 But you, that's that's a totally personality uh, based uh, format. Yeah. You know. Where Honda goes off and makes Once Upon a Time in the West, which is such a departure for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not just like a shaded character, like. Stewart and the mm-hmm. man once he's a total no, he's got the villain. Walter Brennan part in my darling Clementine yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah no, that's, a, that's a real one off Jane Fonda told me that was one of the few times her father ever surprised her as an actor which is kind of a backhanded compliment I think uh, but Jane has issues uh, but she even she thought whoa you know that's a side of daddy I never saw before and it is that's a side of Fonda you never saw before uh, and it's it, to me, it's like another example. Although it's kind of an extension of Fort Apache, where yeah. he's playing a cold-blooded prick. Yeah. And in Fort Apache, you kind of understand why, because he's angry and he feels he's been passed over and shunted aside by the military. So he's bitter. You know, he, there's a backstory there, right. so you understand where he's coming from. Whereas Frank in Once Upon a Time in the West, he's just a killer. He's, he's a stone a killer. He's the heavy. Yeah. And he would complete with black clothes and black hat, which is kind of impractical in the Old West because <laughs> they get dusty real fast. But it, William Boyd got away with it. Why couldn't Henry Fonda? Yeah. Uh, but no, it's a great performance and it's a great film. And when I show it to my kids, they go crazy yeah. in class. They all think it's a, he's magnificent because you can juxtapose, as I mentioned in the talk we did with Leonard, you can juxtapose two directors uh, using the same guy 
and the same qualities of inner silence, where you don't know what he's thinking at any point, uh, to totally disparate ends, you know, between My Darling Clementine and Once Upon a Time, two great directors, two different eras, the same actor, and where do you end up, you know? So you get them thinking analytically about using actors, you know? Uh, and I found that, that that juxtaposition works very well with students. Well, let's talk about their relationship. So in the post-war era, it seems like, you know, like so many guys who went through the war, they don't want to talk about it with anybody. They don't want to tell their kids, oh, what was it like, you know, mm-hmm. gut-stabbing Germans with bayonets. Mm-hmm. Well, kids, it's like this. Um, and they had this relationship where they can sort of share that, as you said the other day, without ever actually really speaking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, tell me about that. Well, the, there are two kinds of, of veterans. There's the veterans that won't talk about it, and there are the veterans that won't shut up. <laughs> uh, Fonda would talk about it, but, uh, w- but not in any great detail, generally, and, and with a sort of discur- dismissive curt, it was all bullshit. I, my attitude was bullshit. The war was bullshit. I was embarrassed I was part of it, you know? Because he went into the war, as he would admit, wanting to kill Japs, you know, gung ho, uh-huh. you know, and all. But the the more time he spent in the service in the Navy in the South Pacific, which was tough duty, although he didn't have. It's not like he was storming the beaches at Saipan, but it was really unpleasant. And you're seeing a lot of death and destruction all around you. Uh, and he just learned that the of the other the pointlessness of it all. You know, not that we should have let the Japanese win, but his he his his expectations were completely unmet of what his experience, his wartime experience would be. And I don't think Stewart had expectations. Stewart was a pilot before the war. He had his own plane. His father had been in two wars: Spanish-American War and uh, uh, World War One. And his father thought acting was an atrocious choice, life choice, because he sent this kid to Princeton. So the kid get an architecture degree, and he's going to do what? <laughs> he's going to what? You're going to you're going to act? Grow up, you know? He just thought it was an insane career choice, and he never respected it, and he never gave his son any credit for it. I don't think I don't think Stewart felt he ever earned anything in his father's eyes until he served in the Air Force and flew those bombing missions and grew to be uh, probably the most extraordinary worker any of the Hollywood guys that went off to those service. You know, yeah. Uh, and at that point, his father respected him, and then of course Stewart goes back to Hollywood and goes back to making movies, and his father goes back to passive aggression <laughs> <laughs> about his son's career choices. You know, so it was a. Uh, but Stewart had that inner knowledge that I did it, yeah. I did it, and the old man knows I did it. Okay, so on some level, he was satisfied by his war experience. In he a way said he said it was he said it was by far the most important event of his life. Okay. Far more than any movie, far more than any show business experience, the war was the was the was the uh, the turning point and the most rewarding event of his life. Yeah, yeah. So because uh, I think it also gave him a sense of value that Hollywood couldn't, that acting couldn't. Yeah, acting scratched one itch, but Jimmy Stewart was a seriously religious man, uh, and and you don't get a lot of of. Uh, spiritual justification out of making movies but you know doing what he did in the war knowing he did he he did what he was supposed to do what his what his sense of honor and country and duty impelled him to do and doing it on a very high level gave him that validation that acting could never have given him 
Well, that brings up an interesting point because I mean, if you're if you're a movie star, you can be very satisfied if what you're satisfied by is sort of sibaritic pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said for sibaritic yeah. pleasure. <laughs> but Stewart, I think, if anybody. You know, has a reputation of having been pretty much what he appeared to be on screen. That's Stewart. That he, you know, he had one wife his whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, no. But he had a lot of girlfriends before of girlfriends. that. Yeah. I mean, he cut he cut a swath. He cut a considerable swath. The funny thing about the two of them is that each of them would give the other one a hard time. That I couldn't, I could never get any dates. Nobody, nobody wanted to go out with me. You were out all the time. You had all these girls climbing off you, and Stuart would say, "No, no, 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 no." I, I was sitting here all the time. You, it was this. Uh, I remember it well. Routine, like Marie Chevalier and Hermione Gingo. It was very funny, and it was almost a set routine. Neither one of them would cop to uh, nailing half the girls in Hollywood. Right. Between them, they probably did nail half the girls yeah. in Hollywood. Um. So yeah, so so Stuart, though, I mean. It, you know, has he's pretty much what you see. Fonda, more complex life, a cold fish to his kids, multiple wives. Um, I don't know. Tell me. Tell yeah, me but how they were a, they were a lot alike. Beneath okay. all that, beneath the polit- political differences, and beneath Fonda's uh, interesting choices in wives and women, uh, uh, and beneath their different relationships with their children, they're very similar guys. They're both loners. They don't have a lot of people in their life, and they don't want a lot of people in their lives. Jimmy Stewart was outwardly affable, but very there's a, there's a story in the book. Uh, I forget who the actor was. It might have been Harry Morgan, who went to uh, John Ford and said, you know, I just, I, I've made a couple pictures with Stewart, but I don't really know who he is. And Ford said, you don't get to know Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart gets to know you. Hmm. And that's very true. He was outwardly affable. But you didn't get in. Not really. There, he had, he, the, and the kids told, Stewart's kids told me, they didn't have a Hollywood upbringing. The only Hollywood people at the Stewart house were Fonda, Lou Wasserman, a producer named Bill Fry, who was a friend of, who produced uh, 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 Cindy's Fella, uh, at Universal, and he, I don't know where he and uh, Stuart hooked up, but they, they were friendly. Um, I think that's it. That's it. Everybody else was out not in show business. And he and Cooper, Gary Cooper and he, were friendly, and they would socialize, but Cooper was never at the house. Hmm. You know? Uh, so he kind of held, he kind of had, he wanted the kids to have a Midwestern upbringing, as much as anybody who grows up in Roxbury, North yeah. Roxbury, can have a Midwestern <laughs> upbringing. But they were, you know, he didn't. They didn't go to a lot of Hollywood parties. They didn't. He didn't want that. He wanted. He was just from a small town in Pennsylvania, and he carried a lot of those attitudes with him. Yeah. Uh, and Fonda, of course, you know, could go days without talking to anybody, which is why actually Cheyenne Social Club is very funny if you know the di- the, the deal, because it's it's the idea of Fonda being a, a Gabby guy who just can't shut up. <laughs> Uh, and just bending people's ears for days is very funny because Fonda was taciturn when he was drunk. He was taciturn, let alone yeah. when he was sober. Uh, and he didn't drink much, but I mean, he just was not a very verbal guy. Uh, so it's a, it's a funny in joke. Yeah. So none of Stewart's. But they kids. were very they were very much loners, and they saw they so they saw their private lives exactly the same way, and they saw their professional lives exactly the same way. They both believed that. You, uh, teaching acting was pointless. 
that you, that what an actor had to do was learn the lines backwards and forwards, look the other actor in the eye, and respect the script. Otherwise, why are you doing the script if you don't? If you're going to like dick around with it and change it and improvise on it, no. Then why do the script? If the script's not good enough to do as written, then don't do the script. It seemed to them self-evident a way to be, you know. And that's why they, that that was their problem with the method, you know, because it's all about the the the, the actors. Responses rather than the you know the actor's responsibility to enact what's written, you know it, it privileges the actor over the writer, and they thought no the actor is submissive to the writer, so they, it was a generational breach between them. But they but they were both absolutely alike in the way they saw their profession and in the way they saw their private lives. Well, both the fondest kids wound up being more improvisational at mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. I mean, clue. Certainly, sure, sure. Fonda and the Carmen films where yeah. they were probably still writing the script as they were shooting. Right. <laughs> or while they were shooting, yeah, the moment the camera ran, you know. Yeah. Uh, but again, it was, that was a classic generational. Very few of, very few of the guys that were uh, 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 the same generation as Fonda and Stewart thought anything of the method. They just, it just irritated them. Yeah. Uh, they were all, uh, to one extent or another, either oblivious to it or offended by it. And it doesn't, see, it doesn't really matter. It's how, however you get there, because there's no one way to be an actor. Right. Anyway, there's one way to look as an actor. It, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there, you know. But I'm sure, uh, you know, working with a Brando would have driven them off the wall. <laughs> off I the wonder, wall. Are there cases where they, they just butted heads with someone so bad uh, because of that kind of, it's a completely different method? No, because they kind of stayed out of each other's way. There's a letter from, from Brando to Leland Hayward because Brando they wanted Brando for Mr. Roberts the film version of Mr. Roberts but when they got but Brando was screwed up because he'd walked off the Egyptian just before shooting he'd signed a contract right. and then he decided he couldn't possibly work for Michael Cortese and he walked off the Egyptian and they had him because he'd signed the contract uh, and they, so they wouldn't let him work anyplace else and there was a period of about six months where he was in limbo because he had to make some uh, uh, and he ended up doing Desiree to pay off the contract he signed to do the Egyptian uh, for Zanuck, right. but he couldn't. Nobody else could hire him until he, you know, did the honored his contract with Zanuck, uh, and they couldn't. And then they hired Ford to do Mr. Roberts to direct Mr. Roberts, and uh, uh, Ford would refuse to work with anybody else except Fonda, because Fonda had also been a Navy man, and yeah. Ford was a Navy man, and Ford thought it was important to hire a Navy man. And Holden could have played the part, uh, not as well as Fonda. Anyway, Ford refused to do the picture with anybody but, but Fonda. So they had to make the deal with Fonda because everybody thought Fonda was too old to play because I think Roberts is supposed to be like 32 or something. And Fonda at this point is 1955. Fonda's born in Oaf. He's 50 years old. Yeah. Now, he doesn't look 50. Right. Fonda looks great in Once Upon a Time in the West when he's 60-something, 60 62 or 63. And he's in fabulous physical condition. He's got those blue eyes, and he's 100% physically. Shortly after that, you started to see age creep up on him. But even then, I mean, he's, you know, when Stewart is really in the foxy grandpa mode, Fonda, I mean, how many movies in the 70s that had the lineup of pictures of the stars, Mm -hmm. and Henry Fonda as the president. As the president, right. (laughs) Yeah. But see, that was, those were his paycheck gigs. Yeah. You know, because, and he knew they were crap. But yeah. he needed, you know, he had this. He had moved back to L.A. in '63 and bought this beautiful place in Bel Air, where Shirley Fonda still lives. Uh, it's a beautiful Spanish Mediterranean place on a top, the top hill in Bel Air, uh, with room for his painting and room for his needlepoint and room for his vegetable gardens and his bees. 
he was a farmer. He, if he left to his own devices, if he hadn't discovered acting, he would have been a very successful farmer because he was really good, and he could raise. He he liked getting his fingers in the ground, you know, uh, and he was good at it. He was good at it, um, and he would have been very happy doing that. It would, probably would have been less pressure and less emotional distress than being in show business was for him. Um, and she's still there, uh, but every once in a while he had to do something like the Swarm. You know, just to keep his name out right. there. Great Smoky Roadblock. Right, right. Well, that was the pits. That was <laughs> that was the nadir. That was the nadir of his career. You know, but every actor when they when you see after Flight of the Phoenix, bombed, and it's a wonderful picture with a major Stewart performance, and nobody went to see it. You can just see him cutting back. You can just see him saying, "It's time." You know, and he starts to do, and the stuff he's doing is less and less interesting and less and less demanding. And he's spending more and more time traveling and seeing the world and going to Africa and watching, doing camera safaris. And that's a rational response to an aging actor's uh, 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 conundrum, which every aging actor, unless they're Meryl Streep or Maggie Smith, goes through. You know, but especially male movie stars. Yeah. At a certain point, your audience gets as old as you are, and your audience doesn't go to the movies anymore. They stay home and watch television. What are you to do? <laughs> yeah, go what to are television. you to do? And twenty-year-olds aren't interested in seeing you because you're their you're their grandfather's movie star. Yeah, you know, it happens. And very few actors actually say, "I quit." Sean Connery quit. Gene Hackman quit. They just walk away. I've William done Powell it. William Powell after Mr. Roberts. William Powell walked. But yeah, but you you can count them on two hands. Yeah. Very few actors ever quit. They just don't get hired. You know, so, uh, and Stuart, because of his interest in animals and his interest in travel and Gloria's outward bound attitude in the first place, whereas Stuart is very insular, Gloria would, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go. She was always looking outward, whereas Stuart was happy to sit at home and watch television or, or uh, walk around the garden or play with the dogs. Yeah. You know, so he married the right woman. She kept him moving. Otherwise, he would have calcified. Yeah. All right, so I'll give you one of those impossible questions to finish up here. Pick, pick a Stuart film and pick a Fonda film. What, what's your favorite? Not best, but favorite. Favorite in terms of their personalities, their favorite performance? That you love. Anatomy of a Murder for Stuart. Because, because he's got nothing to play. He's got, it's reactive. He's completely reactive to everybody, every other character. To the Lee Remick character, to the Ben Gazzara character, to the George C. Scott character. And you never take your eyes off of him, even though he's a reactive character. And you never, you never catch him acting. And I just think in terms of his technique and his style and his ability to put himself over without ever appearing to put himself over, it's a master class in acting. Master class in acting. Fonda, wow. you got to go with Tom Chode. Yeah. It's, a, it's just a mesh of a great actor and a great part and a great director that rarely happens. The planets align. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but if I, had to, if I had to just watch one more Fonda movie before I die, it would probably be Clementine. Yeah. It would probably be Clementine. Uh, that stillness at his center, the way he watches when Victor matures reciting Shakespeare and Fonda's looking at him out of the corner of his eye. And it doesn't look like he's looking at him as wider, but it looks like he's looking at him as Henry Fonda, wondering if this big guy is going to actually get through the speech. And he dies. And he's good. But it's just this... I, just, you, I get a sense of reality with Fonda that you rarely get with movie stars of that generation, where the, where the appeal is the unreality. But with Fonda and Stewart at his best, you do get a feeling of genuine emotional reality. And this is the way 
men really can be. Not necessarily always at their best, sometimes at their worst, but this is the way men can be and are. Thanks to my guests, Richard Berrios and Scott Eyman. And thanks again to Michael Haynes and everyone at Cinevent for bringing all these people together in one place. You should come join us next year. Check it out at Cinevent.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks, so be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. It helps other people discover this podcast, too. Thanks.